everybody, I'm Jeff Suckendorf, CEO of UTVs. I don't even know the name of my company anymore. It's changed. <laughs> we did what, that five times. Is the name changed? Yeah, it's UTD Scuba Diving now, not Unified Team Diving. Anymore. Well, it's Unified Team Diving or UTD Scuba or UTD Diving. diving. Yes. You gotta have an official name. It's UTD Scuba Diving. Okay. All right, welcome everybody. I'm Jeff Seckendorf, CEO of UTD Scuba Diving, here with our training director, Ben Boss. Hey, Ben. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. So this is going to be a really interesting talk discussion that we're going to do today. You know, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you'll realize that we can't go five minutes without talking about cycling. So we're going to bring this back into um, a world of performance sports, not just cycling, but cycling, Formula One racing, indie racing, running, swimming, anything with performance. Yeah, we we kind of got to talking that um, diving is a hard sport when it comes to measuring our metrics. Like, how can you measure the quality or the performance of a dive, right? It's like you measure it in fun, you measure it in... You know your buoyancy control, or do you measure it in in what 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 kind of metrics do we have? And we kind of realize that the only true metric we can we can talk about is is gas consumption. Well, that's the mechanical metric. Remember, we did have the um, enjoyment metric, but that's super subjective. Subjective, yeah, yeah. So in cycling, there's a movement going on. It's been going on for probably a decade now, called marginal gains. And this is a, a, a methodology or a system in which people hunt for the tiniest small performance improvements, knowing that one small performance improvement might get you a little, but 20 small performance improvements get you a lot. I remember there is a, a specific bike computer you can put on the front of your handlebars and they they advertise that you save one watt. And for for those of you who don't know what that is, that's nothing. <laughs> that's like say that's like saying okay, on an hour and a half dive, you save three and a half breaths. So it's in that level of nerdness some of these guys uh, look into. But but you add it up and it's different, right? So I do a, a short race on the track and my bike, right? And I'm doing close to 300 watts for two or three minutes, maybe 350 watts for two or three minutes. One watt, not too much worried about, right? 10 watts starts to make a big difference. So if I can find 10 things that each get me one or two watts, like aerodynamic socks and the flap over the shoes and, you know, are my hands twisted in or out, all these little things, it's amazing. Formula One has been the king of this, right? Because everybody is so equally performance that that uh, the tiniest little gains can give you the edge you need exactly it's heavily regulated uh, in in those performance sports like height and lengths and weights and and i remember when i was performing um, high level sports in holland as a, a kayak uh, rower i was in a dutch team and these boats they were all specifically measured and weight and the length had to be at a certain way and and even then, I mean, I'm talking easy 25 years ago. There were there were developments then in the hull shape of these boats that when you put them on land, 
they would have a normal shape, like a normal U-shape, if you, if you can imagine a cross-section of one of these kayaks. But as soon as you put them in the water and you put the weight of a rower inside, the hull would deform so the U-shape would, would become like a, like, a, like a smaller U, if you like. Uh, the, the, the center point would, would compress and that would make for a, you know, a, a more aerodynamic or aquadynamic um, uh, boat and all these sort of stuff. So even back then we were talking about marginal gains because we were, we're dealing with, you know, 10 centimeters of boat length to, to discuss who won the, the race or not. You know, we just finished the Tour de France this year. And uh, one of the team directors I heard doing an interview saying that the fastest guy in the Tour de France and the slowest guy in the Tour de France are 2% apart. That's crazy. In fitness. That's crazy. It's crazy, right? So where do you get the differences, right? Smartness, of course, is a big yeah, one. Yeah, tactics, yeah. Uh, the men- tactics and the mental aspects and all that. But certainly, you know, equipment choice becomes this huge thing where you're trying to get, like we talked about, one watt, two watts, four watts here and there. So, you know, are you better off taking an aerodynamic wheel that weighs more or are you better off with a lighter wheel that's less aerodynamic? And then you have to weigh... Well, the weight is easier to go uphill, but the aerodynamics make it faster to go downhill. So all of these things become part of it. So Ben and I got talking last week about how do you take this whole concept of marginal gains and apply it to scuba diving? And, you know, for all you engineers or scientists or people who are just interested in the small little things about scuba equipment, this podcast is for you. Yeah, yeah. scuba nerds out there. Here you go. This is for you. Right. Exactly. The people who really want to get the most out of their dive. Now, let's let's set the metric, right? We talked about this a few minutes ago. The metric almost has to be how long can you make your cylinder last? How long can you make that tank last in the water regardless of depth? Now, I was on, it was a really interesting dive. Um, Family went down to Dominica in the Caribbean a year or two ago, and we took two friends with us coming into their earliest dives. Maybe they each had five or ten dives each. They were brand new. Part of this was to take them on these cool uh, warm water dives. And I had this very long conversation. That wasn't actually a long conversation. A very short but dynamic conversation with the dive master on those dives. And it was like, we want 40 feet. 12 meters max. These tanks have to last forever. And where's the first place we go? 80 feet, 90 feet, 27 meters. And I'm like, just screaming at this guy underwater. It's like, we've got to get shallower. We've got to get shallower. And the inevitable happened, which is, you know, these dives ended up being, this first one ended up being 20 minutes. And what a waste of time when there was the same thing to see at, you know, 20 feet, six meters that there was at 90 feet, 27 meters. So, Part of the simplest element of marginal gains is you want to have a dive, you want to make it last a long time, you want to enjoy it. What can you do to make that cylinder last longer so you reach more the limits of where your dive would have to naturally end? Do you get too cold? Uh, do you get bored? Do you get too far from the boat? Do all these other things. So, you know, that was a really interesting experience for me to to really see these guys get frustrated when, they, you know, they get down 20, 25 minutes into their dives and they're running out of gas. So that seems to be the metric, right? The metric is how long does your cylinder last? Exactly. That's the one we can also measure easier 
than anything else in scuba diving. Sack rate. Yeah, it's a sack rate. So, so bef- before we dive into, <laughs> pun intended, uh, on <laughs> how to do it, is, is <laughs> maybe we should give the people a clue on how to calculate their sack rate. So when they got all these tips we're going to um, reveal in a minute how to do it. And, and Well, let's, let's, let's not make it sack rate because that's physiological. Let's make it depth consumption rate. No, okay. The, the consumption at depth. Right. Let's talk about it in terms of depth consumption rate because that's what I was just yeah. talking about, right? Sack rate, we know the sack rate's going to be high on new divers. Yeah. There's no sense in aggravating that by, you know, increase, in this case, increasing depth to make the depth consumption rate higher. So yeah. go ahead and talk. Let's talk about sac rate that turns into depth consumption rate. Yeah, sac rate is, I mean, the abbreviation stands for surface air consumption. Um, and, you know, it means how much gas you use per minute breathing at the surface. And then we can relate that to depth consumption by just timing that by the factor of what depth you are. So if you're doing that at 10 meters to atmosphere, you're you're doubling your sac rate, basically. So your depth consumption becomes the addis times your sac rate. So, I mean, doubling your sac rate into depth consumption rate, you're also having the amount of time you can spend in the water. Exactly. So if you're breathing one cubic foot a minute, your 80 cubic foot tank will last 80 minutes. Super easy. If you take that tank to 10 meters, two atmospheres, 30 feet, that tank now lasts 40 minutes. Exactly. So basically... The tips we're about to give you, the deeper you go, the heavier they uh, they count. So that that kind of means if we relate this back to like aerodynamics, for example, the faster you go, the bigger influence aerodynamics has in your uh, efficiency. And it's a bit the same in diving. If the deeper we go, the bigger the uh, the influence of um, the marginal gains in, in what we can do to save gas uh, will have. So. so fundamentally, we're talking about drag, right? There's two kinds of drag. There's induced drag and parasitic drag in, a- in aviation, in aerodynamics. The parasitic drag is the drag of all the stuff that's out there, right? That's hanging off the airplane, that's hanging off your body, hoses that are flapping around computers that are dragging on the bottom, Hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then induced drag, that's what Ben is talking about, that becomes exponentially uh, more draggy the faster you go, right? So what we want to do is pay attention to both. (laughs) Now, fixing parasitic drag is reasonably easy in scuba diving, right? Put on all your stuff, look in a mirror, and try to get rid of all the stuff that's just dangling there without any purpose, right? So let's talk about parasite drag first, right? Because that's the one that, like, where do we start to get rid of the things that are hanging around that are just dragging in the water, doing nobody any good? Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of new divers, probably every new diver has learned at one point or another in in their earliest stages of their career that you should try to streamline your equipment. But that's easier said than done because then they get put this BCD on with, uh, which has a, a certain size limit, and then the straps you pull to make it fit you correctly is a loose strap that's now dangling. And if you then attach a light to that little D-ring at the end of those straps, you got a, a even bigger dangly hanging around. And then you got long octopus hoses that are sticking way out because they're designed to be longer, so there's more playroom. But if they don't get tucked away properly... 
um, they create drag. So even though the the source is close to you and it looks streamlined, the the hose in this case might actually be the one that causing that's causing enough a lot of drag. Now, interestingly, the initial DIR configuration, which contained a lot of this gear close to your body, was not done to make less drag. It was done to make less things get caught on stuff. Yeah. Bits of rock in a cave, things in a wreck, lines, kelp, all that stuff. But if you follow the sort of traditional DIR equipment configuration, and we've now sort of in UTD kind of modified that in different ways and little bits and pieces, the idea still is everything is close to your body. Yeah. And you and you're getting rid of as much of that parasite drag as you possibly can. And you know, the, a jacket BC is the worst, right? Because you've got those big shoulders and this vest and there's water just going everywhere when you kick. None of it's streamlined. Whereas yeah. a harness with a back plate uh, and, and a tight-fitting wing that's kind of pulled into the harness has a dramatically less drag hanging off it. Exactly. A lot of efficiency is, is lost uh, in, in that area when you just wear a big bulky uh even a big bulky wing there used to be wings with bungees um that kind of make the wing look like a french poodle uh and and they're they're super draggy Uh, and and again it looks like we're talking about really small stuff because you're swimming slowly does it really have an effect but think back to when we started the podcast it's like okay hey if there's a small effect to be held here you add all those up it becomes a big effect. And then get a scooter yeah. in the mix. So if you want to find out what's draggy on your on your gear, borrow somebody's scooter or use your scooter and just go through the water on the scooter and you can just feel the gear dragging away from you. You feel where it's pulling. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's exactly. so. And that's what Ben was saying earlier is that the faster you go, the more pronounced the drag is. Yeah. So really think about tidying up yourself. Uh, if you can get your buddy to take a picture of you uh, facing front um, in at the same level so you really get an idea what your frontal uh, your frontal size is your frontal um, uh, footprint so to speak uh, and you can see whatever sticks out needs to be tucked in as much as possible right it's cda in aerodynamics right coefficient of drag yeah exactly coefficient of drag area and that's what we're looking at right and the bike on cars on swimmers on all that we're trying to make that that coefficient of drag as small as is possible and now in diving we want to take that same thing that cda and make that as just small and small and small as possible so on that same topic on on the streamlining of the equipment a very big maybe obvious point is to only take what you need on a dive and think about what kind of dive you're doing. So if you're going to do a shallow shore dive, there's no need for big heavy doubles. You might get away with just a single tank on your back, which is, uh, you know, a lot less draggy. Significantly less draggy. Yeah, than uh, than the pair of doubles. Very early in in my career as a diver, uh, when I just started like touching reconfiguring myself in a dir fashion um, a diver told me and he was in no way shape or form a dir diver like 
almost the opposite with regards to configuration and attitude on solo diving and whatever. But he, he gave me, a, he said something to me. Uh, and this is, I mean, back in 99, I think. Uh, and it always stuck to me. If you take something with you underwater, you should be able to uh, find it, use it and put it back where it was. If you can't put it back where you found it, you need to put it somewhere else. I mean, that kind of holds true for all the stuff we use in a DIR configuration because all the, the stuff we can find is, is easily put back together. And it kind of ties back into the very early days of, of DIR, the Hogarthian way of diving is at first long hoses were implemented in, in, in cave diving where this whole thing was born but no one was breathing the long hose. It was stuffed underneath bungees on the twin set and they were breathing the short hose because they thought the long hose has more internal drag of the, of the gas flow and therefore giving you a higher breathing resistance and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then the Bill Hogarth main kind of said, well, I don't want to hassle with those bungees on my tanks. I'll just take that long hose and, and drape it around the way we have it now around my you know hip right hip left shoulder around the neck and then he figured out okay this is a pain in the ass to have this thing hanging dangling in front of me i'm just gonna breathe it and and you know what F fuck it I'll, I'll leave the the short hose the necklace around my neck and i'll breathe off the long hose and that's how it all got born out of his need to get more efficient but because a lot of divers uh, many years after that used the long hose in a stowed away uh, behind a pair of bungees on the cylinders and even though you can do that the fact is that if you practice s drills air sharing drills it's very hard to put it back there without you know a lot of help from the team so the result is no one no one practiced air sharing because it was a pain in the ass <laughs> or the hose got dangled out after you use it yeah exactly right i mean we've even seen that on stage switches and stuff you know you you, you go in the water and your stage hose your regulator hose it's all perfectly tucked it's under two bungees the the hose comes up and it goes under the mouthpiece goes under it and all this other stuff and then you know you use it and you put it together you put it back when some semblance of maybe one bungee and the regulator is flopping around out there and all sorts of other crazy stuff. So keeping that, that, uh, that just attention to detail in the water. If you use your wet notes, like Ben was saying, if you use your wet notes, when you're done with them, put them back in your pocket. I think one of the best inventions in a dry suit ever is that the, uh, the, the space behind the pocket, between your leg and the pocket, is open at the top. Yeah. So when you're done with your wet notes, you just shove them behind the pocket. It's like a pocket behind the pocket. Yeah, right? either that and then some, uh, some of the suits also have an internal, almost like a, a they're calling them a wet note pocket. And, and that's also very easy to get, you know, your wet notes in there. All you do is you shove them in there and there's a little, tiny little bungee in there even to keep it in and... And that just makes things a lot more uh, hassle-free. So practice becomes one of the things about about reducing our drag, our frontal area drag. I, I very clearly remember being on one of my very earliest tech training dives, and I had to take out wet notes. And I swear it took me like 15 minutes to get them back in my pocket. Yeah. And during that 15 minutes, 
I was just a mess, right? Um, yeah, um, you're kicking and you're trying to bend my knees you're... forward so I can reach my pocket. And there's a stage bottle and this and that. And it's, oh my God, it was a mess. So part of what we're talking about with marginal gains is you. Yeah. It's your body position. It's your efficiency in the water. Um, again, on the bike, when we're doing these time trials, these races against the clock, and you're in these very tight aerodynamic positions, mm. if you sit up, yep. you know, you're losing 20, 30, 40 watts instantly, right? So the idea is do what you have to do, but then get back in that position. And the same thing is true with, with, diving. Uh, with diving, right? Now, when you take all of this stuff we're talking about in cycling... 80% of your aerodynamic drag is caused by your body position. For sure. And I'm going to I'm going to guess that in the water it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Right that 80 80% of your efficiency going through the water hydrodynamic hydrodynamic is that I hydrodynamics? Guess is the word. yeah. So the hydrodynamic drag is based on your body position and um 20% of it's based on the gear. Exactly. Right? exactly. We know in scootering when you have a scooter on, I try to be like a plank in the water, yeah. right? That my feet are straight back, that my left hand, it's not holding the scooter, is down by my side, that I keep the scooter tucked in front of me um, as high up as I can get it just so the, the prop wash doesn't hit the regulator. I try to be like this torpedo hmm. in the water. Um, now, when you're kicking, it's a little bit differently, right? Because we teach you to get your feet up above your body and use them as propulsion but still you need to pay attention to how your body looks in the water yeah and of course a flutter kick is a horribly inefficient yeah it's inefficient from 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 a drag point of view but also from from a f the fact where you're pushing the water point of view but i think we'll come to that in a minute on on fin choice and finning technique so where do we where should we start on equipment because i think body position is absolutely first yeah, the body position and how you use your body. Usually, when I teach uh, like these classes and we're in a, on essentials classes where we're looking at the first, you know, um, way of changing a diver's mind into how to behave underwater. Um, I, I sometimes, when you see these people trying to put, for example, wet notes back in their pocket and they're using every fiber of their body to get that wet note back in the pocket, I usually say uh, use like move only the parts of your body that need to move. So what do you need to put your wet notes back in your pocket is your right arm, nothing else. You know, and so only move that. Keep your head up, look at your team, keep your fins straight, stay in trim, keep your chest out, all that sort of stuff stays the same. And then focus only on using your right hand to maneuver yourself uh, through your pocket content or whatever you need to do in that pocket. Try to really slow down the movements so that you don't uh, lose your 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 composure underwater and your posture um, a lot of new divers there uh, and a lot of people we are so used to getting visual input to the stuff we're doing because we're looking at something and then our hands and our hand-eye coordination make that happen writing you know picking something up we look at it we reach for it we pick it up Within diving, we have such a limited field of view because of the mask and because of the whole bulkiness of the equipment. We need to rely more on our tactile feeling when we're doing stuff like switching gas, finding regulators, finding light switches, 
rumbling to your pockets and all that sort of stuff. And it takes a little bit of time to get used to. And it's funny that 80% of the information your brain needs to process comes through your eyes. So as soon as you give your mind the idea that information is going to come to your eyes, you're going you're gonna to numb down the other senses because the brain is going to expect visual input. So if you're trying to look down at your D-ring, for example, to clip off something, but you can't see it unless you're some kind of giraffe, then, then you're having a hard time actually feeling for the D-ring and, and, and then that makes it less efficient. And maybe you're using two hands, which means that you now you've lost more of the streamlining yeah. effect. Yeah, Front, frontal area is even bigger now, yeah. So, exactly. so before we move on to the very specifics, let's talk about a metric, right? So one thing we can do, we need a metric that's repeatable, right? So if you can go in a pool, like the deep end of a pool, 8, 10 feet, you know, 2, 3 meters deep, and from a standing start, right, just neutrally buoyant, not touching anything, see how many kicks it takes to go the length of the pool, the 25 or the 50 meters. And count the kicks and pay attention to how much gliding you're doing, how efficient your kick is, and so on. And then change something and do it again. And change something and do it again. And remember, pools have current, right? Those pumps that are shooting water in have current. So always do them in the same direction. Don't get caught into that trap that you're going, you know, Two, two nuts faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some pools are crazy, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then try something, right? Try doing it again, but with your arms spread out and see what the difference is. Try to make some dramatic changes and see what the differences are and try to get yourself a baseline for where you think you're the most efficient and it takes you 12 kicks to go 25 meters or whatever it is. I don't know what the number is. But then you can start to really look and say, okay, what's the next thing that I'm going to change? And maybe it's the placement of your light canister. And it still takes you 12 kicks. And then you change this thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then your body position. Now you have a sudden you're doing it in 10 kicks. Well, going from 12 kicks to 10 kicks for the same distance. For 25 meters. For 25 meters. You've now reduced your air consumption by what about 10 or 12 percent right that's a lot that's a lot yeah and so so when we get the the basics out of the way i guess you guys all are with us that okay if you if you have proper buoyancy control you lose you use less gas to stick at the same depth because you're you're not you know, wasting a lot of deep breaths to get up or exhalations and then inhalations to stay at yourself. If you can stay more relaxed in your proper buoyancy control, obviously that's a very big issue. And I think a lot of divers need to work on the fact that they can use their lungs much more than they probably think. And more efficiently. And more efficiently as well. Uh, and it, it is something we see when, as the first thing uh, when we when we have a diver who has a lot of dives under his belt, but we take him, for example, through a program we call Extreme Scuba Makeover, where we really go back to the basics and look at breathing, then all of a sudden we, we, we reduce maybe the weight that this diver carried by maybe 10 pounds, 5 kilos less. So that means that his or her lungs all of a sudden became become much more efficient and they need to 
relearn that they can use that breathing to their benefit. And, and what sometimes ends up happening is that the first period after that, like reduction, gross reduction in weight, they go and add the weight back because they feel that they're not in control. Because every time they take a breath, they go up. But they have to realize as soon as they exhale again and give a little pause, they actually come down again. And talking about that specific subject, actually we have a video on our YouTube channel where which is called Breathing is Key in Scuba Diving. And this is actually where we go into depth that it's okay to hold your breath uh, while scuba diving and, and, you know, unlike a lot of new divers have learned, never, ever, ever hold your breath. Let's just clarify it, right? It's okay to hold your breath except when you're going up. Except when you're going up. Obviously, don't don't hold your breath and swim to the surface, but I guess everyone uh, is, aw- is aware of that. But just by saying something very black and white and never, never, ever hold your breath means that you can never use your breathing for buoyancy because... That way it's just in and out, in and out, and you don't give yourself time. So, Can I tell you my biggest pet peeve on wasted gas? Mask clearing. Oh, my God. Yeah. So how many times have you seen somebody be told to clear a mask, right? So you flood your mask, basic six, number five, flood your mask, and then clear it. And the first thing that happens is you you breathe in, you breathe out through your nose, you get just barely enough water out so you can see. And then the next thing the diver does is take a big breath, blow it out through his nose, take a big breath, blow it out through her nose. And now you've used three breaths in a row to clear your mask when you could have used three breaths while you're swimming yeah. to clear your mask. So for example, flood the mask, clear it. Can you see? Awesome. Wait, stop, enjoy the moment. And in your next breathing cycle, whenever that happens to be, do the rest. Yeah. Breathe in through your mouth clear out the next piece of the mask and it might take you you know two minutes to finally get all the water out but you're not wasting a single breath just for that one particular purpose just do it as a part of your normal breathing cyclist because then that way you don't have to waste so much gas and the other one of course is that people won't breathe out into the water when the regulator is not in their mouth yeah this is another one that makes me crazy, right? Mm. You're asking someone to take the regulator out of their mouth. They take a breath. They take the regulator out. They wait, they wait, they wait. They put. They start going up a little bit. They wait. They put the regulator back in. They blow out a huge breath. Ah, yeah. You, and they go back down. It's okay to breathe out when it's not in your mouth. Yeah. So why, okay, so why won't people breathe out when there's no regulator in their mouth? Do you understand? I think it's, I think, I think it's the... It's, it's, it's something you see with very new divers and it's because they're fi- their brain is finally catching on to the fact that, okay, when this thing is in my mouth, I can breathe in and out. As soon as that thing is out, the mammalian diving reflex takes over again and say, okay, when your face is immersed in water, hold your breath. That's what the little mammalian, you know, devil is saying on the, on the, on the right shoulder. On the left shoulder is your scuba instructor saying, you know, when you're going up, breathe out. Regardless if the regulators in your mouth are out, the, the breathing cycles continues. So it's, it's quite funny. Okay, so... Anyway, before we digress, another very obvious one, <laughs> I guess, is, is, is obviously um, trim. Uh, we talked a little bit about your frontal area. Now imagine you're standing up or you're laying flat down. It's not very hard to imagine that a diver in a more horizontal position, what we call trim a prone position underwater, is more streamlined. So so we're, we're going to touch back on that a little bit later on what things can actually help you get a better trim without finning for it. 
Um, uh, but but obviously trim is a very big one. Right, and there's another podcast. The same way a flow check was a podcast. Oh, for sure. You yeah. know, trim can be about five podcasts. But <laughs> the first thing, the very first thing, if you're still flutter kicking, stop flutter kicking. I can't stress that enough, right? That kick does everything wrong to your body. And often it's combined with weights on your waist. Yeah. So, you know, anything, and what's happening is now you're, you know, you're 30 degrees up, tipped up. And you're plowing through the water, and the water is hitting your chest, the front of your legs, the your ankles, all of that. It's just truly the most inefficient thing. Plus, your flutter kick is pushing the water down into the bottom, so it's it's fogging up people behind you from the silt, and it's kicking you up, not forward. So you got about a thousand things going on. Yeah, it's it's doing a different purpose, and and we'll touch that on on fin techniques in a, in a, in a while, but. Before we jump into the, the 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 small marginal gains, like the real nitty gritty, uh, a big factor is we can get around it is fitness, right? I mean, if you have a better base core fitness, you're gonna use less gas. It's as simple as that. If your body is more efficient in propelling you, whether it being on a bike, running, walking or in the water swimming or diving it's just going to be more efficient if your if your cardiovascular system is better equipped uh, you're going to use less gas it's as simple as that so do it i think core fitness is probably as important as aerobic fitness though yeah having a strong core right strong abdominal muscles strong obliques even strong hip flexors all of that this is going to make you much more stable when you start getting your body in these positions that are not natural, which is feet up, kicking, hands quiet, everything quiet on your body. So the more you can maintain that position for long periods of time, the better off you are, the less movement, the less wiggling, the less hand stuff. Oh, we got. We have to talk about hand movement. Did you write a that hand down? movement? It's top of the list here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so core fitness, I think, is as important. So, if you are on an exercise um, routine, be sure before you go off for your run, your ride, your swim, whatever, you at least knock out, you know, maybe ten minutes of simple core activation exercises, and make sure that's part of your routine. Very simple, easy way to do it. Anyone yeah, can do it, and there's not and enough. There's not enough excuses. There's no excuses out there that say, "Oh, I can't do it" or whatever. Um, I'm tired. It's 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 very easy. Um, Can we talk about hand movements now? Or do you? I know you have a list, so I don't want, I don't want to jump around it too much. No, the hand movement. I have a list that's divided up into the obvious ones, <laughs> and then the the, the more fine tuning ones. So after buoyancy control, not being overweighted. A, a, a good level of fitness and core fitness hand movements which kind of ties into the unnecessary body movements when you're doing things underwater is very important and it, it also I think hand movement ties in a lot with buoyancy control because a lot of divers uh, new and experienced ones maybe still take land logics underwater like how your body reacts to movement on land uh, is not always the same how it reacts underwater. And and that ties into hand movements. We're so used to, you know, when we're going to push ourselves away from our desk, 
we can use our feet on the floor or our hands on the desk and just shove off and we'll move in the backwards, you know, away from our desk. Or if we're going to lean up against a tree to tie, I don't know, to stretch out or whatever. We're so used to using our hands for stability. And we can't use it underwater unless you, you know, lean on the bottom. Uh, but we always say, don't touch the bottom. So what happens is they're trying to fly underwater and flap their little birdie wings uh, called hands and, and you know, <laughs> in the hope of it'll keep them away from the bottom. And what ends up happening is they'll just silt out the place. And, and, and obviously when you're staying in the same spot, you're not less efficient in moving because you're not moving anywhere but it costs energy to move your hand up and down through the water and that energy and you're not wearing a giant big fin so it's completely inefficient yeah, it is inefficient in any which way shape or form but that, that's the that's the first thing people have to learn is taking you know, taking that new mindset underwater it's like hey my body will react differently in the aquatic environment so here here's my my favorite story about hand movements and it's it's based on decades of teaching now. So somebody comes into a class very experienced and we go through all the dry runs and you know your hands are in that perfect little DIR position in front of you and everything's perfect and you're supposed to hold your buoyancy with your breath and and then you do some task, right? You un you take the regulator out, you put it down, you put it back and then when you have your hands free again, you do this very subtle, sneaky movement, like I know the instructor, I know Jeff or Ben won't see this, but as I get my hands back in that DIR position, I'm just going down a little bit, so I'm just going to push a little bit of water down, and maybe I'll come back in my neutral position. And guess what? We see it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or if we don't, the camera will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't fake it, right? If you're using your hands while you're trying to stay still then there's something wrong with your buoyancy system. Either you're not using enough gas in your lungs to maintain that buoyancy, or if you're continually, you know, we, I see so many people trying to finger point off the bottom, right? They don't want to touch the bottom, but it's okay if you touch the bottom with your finger and you just push yourself up. Well, you know what? Use that finger to touch the BC inflator and put a little squirt of air in the BC and then fix it, right? But don't think, don't think we're not, don't think we're not seeing it. Don't think we're not seeing it because we are. <laughs> exactly. And it, it ties into, I mean, that, I mean, that, that, I mean, if there are any instructors out there listening, they'll probably recognize this, right? Because it's that little tiny, um, hey, movement <laughs> underwater. <laughs> <You know? laughs> hey. hey, you didn't yeah. see me, but hey, I don't have my buoyancy quite <laughs> right. Yeah, but exactly. Maybe you didn't notice. And, and usually it, it's not even doing anything other than cheating your brain that split second it takes your body just to re reestablish that neutral position you had it's just a bad habit you know it's, it does something that's not doing anything it is wasting all of these marginal gains right it's wasting body movement it's wasting breath it's wasting you know all of it so okay so don't use your hands and if you do use your hands uh you you'll know that ben and i are watching okay What's next? Yeah, so we got over the obvious ones. So now when we're looking at it, we touched on a little bit like finning techniques, flutter kicks and all that sort of stuff. So when we before we talk about finning techniques, like let's talk about fin choice, right? Because it's a, I mean, if ever there was a sport where you can buy equipment that, that you know, 
gets sold on the false promise of gas consumption or you know faster this and that or more efficient and blah 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 fins and propulsion and all that sort of stuff listen it is super simple you don't have to be an engineer you know that energy is only there it can only be moved it cannot be you know produced uh, or heightened some so if you put something in it it's going to be with a little bit of loss coming out of it you cannot make it more efficient that's not how it works so if you buy a pair of fins that say you become more efficient it's kind of hard to do because if you think about you pushing yourself off of a wall you know the wall is like a swimmer that's setting off after at the very first push off the wall of the pool that's as efficient as he's going to get out of his leg muscles pushing him through the water. He's pushing off something that will not move. Now, the, the, the more flexible your fins will be, the less efficient you're going to be. So you get all these marketing hyped fins with bendy this and splitty here and elastic bands thus and you know, uh, shaped like a fishing fin and um, all these funny marketing things. The fact of the matter is, the easier the fin makes it for you to move your leg up and down or back and forth through the water, the less efficient it is. It's, it's, it's easier to move your legs up and down, yes, but it doesn't mean that you're getting through the water in a more efficient way. What, what we like with fin choice, what we suggest and what we advise in people buying is a stiff short bladed fin because that'll give you the the most efficient feedback from the water we want to go as close to we can to we can to that wall we can push off of because then i know with the least amount of force i can push away when we teach in classes we sometimes have people sitting on chairs and it depends a little bit on the classroom if it's a tile floor or something it's like if there's it's a reasonably slippery floor so imagine you're on a on a chair with plastic feet on a slippery floor. If you push to your, your partner beside you uh, very, very hard and sharply, you probably both move uh, off because of the slippery floor. Or even if you try it on a, on, a, on a chair from an office with wheels on it. You know, if you push towards each other hard, both of you are going to move. Now to see how hard you can push to push the other person away without your wheelie chair rolling away and that's what we're trying to do underwater right we're trying to push ourselves through the water without losing as much of the water as we can behind our fin and think about it i mean i spend a lot of my youth uh, rowing a canoe and a kayak if it was really that efficient to have floppy things to propel yourself through the water all the kayak pedals i would use would be soft and bendy and they're not they're like shaped like a spoon we want to catch as much as the water we can so we can pull ourselves through the water and that's what we're going to want to do with the fin so if we have a stiff short bladed fin it allows us to feel the water better and that way push against it with less force propelling us forward so that's a long story to tell you what kind of fins you should get but Short, stiff fins. So the true marginal gains movement would spend an enormous amount of time studying the minutia of fins, the same way we do with wheels and fairings on cars and things like that. So one of the nice things about UTD scuba diving now is we're out of the equipment business, 
right? The the company has uh, been divided up into two. So um, we only have the training side here, so we can talk completely objectively about equipment because we're not connected to UTD equipment any longer. So, um, so basically, we're still using a fin that was designed in the 40s. No, 60s. The jet, the jet fin? Yeah, 1962. Okay, yeah. my bad. So it feels like the 40s. So, yeah. we're des- we're, so we're using a fin that was designed 40 years ago. But even before the jet fin, the fin was very similar, right? I mean, all these, if you look at the fins they were using in Sea Hunt, for example, I mean, that was like 50s, right? And they, they're, they're, that's a, a rubber, stiff, short-bladed fin. The jet fin was just a rever- revamped version. It's a military version of it, basically. But so, so what? What would do you think is? And neither of us are engineers, although we kind of pretend we are. <laughs> what would be the best fin, right? I mean, this has been going on for years and years, and you see it in in free diving like crazy. You know, a big giant single blade fin is that better? Um, is, are these super long fins more efficient? Um, you know, is a little tiny like carbon fiber blade better? What about the foot pocket? If you could just design a fin today and magically 3D print it and be done in two hours, what would that look like? I mean, to give credit where credit's due, it probably would look like something like, without naming a brand, something like the design that was made in 1962. <laughs> the jet fin, basically. Well, I think that short, uh, broad-sided fin, it just makes for me the the most sense i mean when i had in my dive shop uh i was in the opportunity to test everything out and i've always been a dive geek i've i've had fins which were plastic fins which had a stronger piece of plastic underneath the plastic fin so that when you did your flutter kick on the upstroke like pulling your leg up so to speak it would be more flexible and then on the downstroke it would be stiffer and you know that i've tried that once before and then you get these fins that had like a hinge system and we sold them in the shop and i tested them out with with like adjustable rubber bungee type spring hingey system in there which kind of did the same thing on the upstroke it would be easier and the downstroke would be stiffer now the problem with all of that of course is you're talking about a flutter kick and a flutter kick is a one directional kick exactly so every time you wiggle your feet no matter what you go forward on a flutter kick or anything like that our our methodology of diving is that the fins are are more for control than they are for going straight ahead propulsion. Yeah, exactly. So we need to be able to helicopter turn. We need to be able to back kick. We need to be able to hold position. You know, we're now about to institute a, a, a sideward, a sideways kick into the system. So you can kind of move yourself sideways without using your hands, all of that. So this is, in, in some ways, my question about what fin would you design, it, would, it was a little bit rhetorical because... We need a fin that will propel you forward, but we also need a fin with a big fat sidewall that becomes the the kicking surface when you're back kicking. You're hooking the water, right? You can't just pull your yeah. You can't just pull your heels forward because your heels don't present any any uh, amount of surface area to propel you with. So you've got to use the side of the blade. So if we make the side too big for so it's really efficient back kicking, it becomes completely inefficient frog kicking. Exactly frog kicking forward so so we do have this problem of having to do multiple things 
with the fin. It's not like you can change your fins when you want to back kick and then stop for a minute, put your forward fins on and, and go from there. Although that does lead to an interesting idea that if the fin could be just like with a solenoid, an electronic thing and a little display and a button, you could change the, <laughs> the shape of the fin underwater oh my God. on the fly, kind of like a dropper seat post on a bike, yeah, right? Yeah. You're going uphill, you drop, you bring it up, you're going downhill, you bring it down. So we could have like buttons on each hand. Extendable fins. Right? Like shifters. Yeah. So you could change the shape of the fin. Oh my God. While you're diving. You that would cost what? $12,000 for a fin? Yeah, easy. Easy. That'll be sellable. <laughs> That'll be sellable. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think it's funny. We could, the jet fin, I'm, I'm almost certain it wasn't developed with frog kicking technique in mind, but the whole shape just makes it, makes it work. Because if you look at the jet fin, now we're talking about the Scuba Pro jet fin. If you're looking at it from the side, you can it's actually curved a little bit. So when you look at the, the foot pocket, if that's horizontal, the actual fin angles down a little bit, points down a little bit. So that actually makes a good scoop for when we're doing our frog kick. Now, when you think about the mechanics, like we talked about flutter kicking is not so efficient in it to, to, to clarify that. It's because the biggest portion of your fin is pushing water away downwards instead of backwards and and the only water that or the only force that's moving you forward is by the water that's being propelled in the opposite direction well the force that's going against the water in the opposite direction yeah that's what i mean exactly so so when we're looking about a frog kick a lot bigger portion of that kick is propelling water if not all of it backwards and upwards which propels us more efficiently forward so that's just to close that one down that's why we don't like a flutter kick in the standard way with the you know locked knees and just the hips moving up and down and you can't go backward then and it's very hard to flutter kick backwards <laughs> you ever try to back kick in a pair of split fins yeah i mean you can and i saw i saw this recently somewhere someone on i think on some social media maybe facebook someone posted split fins and it's like hey, I don't care what you use as long as you can propel yourself, you know, if you, as long as you can propel yourself and, and, and position yourself and do a back kick and stuff. And I totally agree with that. However, we we are obligated to tell the students that there is a tool for the job that is the best tool for the job. And split fins aren't the best tool for the job. Even though you can do a back kick, I can do a back kick barefoot. Yeah. But it's not that efficient. No, but that's know? a good way to learn it. It, it's Put a very snorkel on, get in the pool, and back kick. On the I mean, I've back kicked with a pair of freediving fins. You know, it, it's really tricky. It's actually also a very good way of teaching yourself that you shouldn't move your feet backwards too fast because the tips of the fins will just move all over the place. And doing that in a pair of freediving fins, which are like the same length as my body almost because I'm not very tall, <laughs> you know, it's almost, it's, it's almost impossible, but it, it can be done. So fin choice is super, super important. Um, it makes our life easier. But again, if you cannot do a back kick, just buying another pair of fins will not magically make you be able to do a back kick. So don't get fooled by the, by the fact that you can buy yourself out of poor technique. You still need to do the mechanics of the back kick properly in able to make it work. Uh, which means take a class market. if you can't which means you know get some class. education get some training into yeah. uh, that portion okay so fins body position fins hydrodynamics body position. yep what's next um 
Well, I tied into trim, uh, trim weights, because that exercise you 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 talked about at the beginning, Jeff, uh, about placing yourself into a pool and then counting the kicks, how many kicks it'll take you to get to the other side. Touching on that, do that one more time and then make a side note on how many kicks you're actually doing that are that you don't do to propel yourself, but just do to stay in trim. Um, either because you're getting top heavy or because your feet are, are sinking a little bit. And, and that ties into the trim weights, like placing small weights, um, different positions on your body to make it so that you don't have to use your legs and fins to stay in trim. This is the same thing as as trying to fake using your hands a little bit, like yeah. we won't see it. Yeah. And you see this at the end of frog kicks. If somebody is either head up or head down, yeah. trim heavy, head up, or trim uh, trim light, head up, or trim heavy, head down, you'll see them do the kick, and then almost like a J-stroke in a canoe, you know, which is designed to straighten out the canoe. Yeah. After their kick, while they're in the recovery, they'll kind of wiggle their feet a little bit yeah. and try to get back into trim. And, and we see this all the time with people wiggling their feet to try to do something with. But remember, wiggling your feet, wasting energy, chewing up your, your hydrodynamic drag, yeah. and looks horrible. Yeah, exactly. Right? Burns gas, all this other stuff. So what Ben's talking about with trim and getting the weights right is so, so important. And the scuba industry has done nobody any favors by creating integrated weight pockets on the belt of a jacket-style BC. No, it's way too that high. That is probably the worst scenario you could possibly be in because you're forcing someone to put weights in a position without actually finding out where the weights belong. Yeah, exactly. There's some jacket-style BCs that have like different positioning for some smaller weights, but the majority is, is in one position and you can't really do anything about it. You can't really move it around. Um, and then the other stuff is like ankle weights, right? I mean, that's something on the other side of that scale. It's like, okay, then if my legs keep floating up, I'll just put some ankle weights on. And that's a whole new, I mean, probably ankle weights is whole another podcast. topic know, for that, a whole that podcast. That would be a rant. <laughs> that, would, that wouldn't be a for fair sure. podcast because we would just yell at each to, other. To make a long story short about ankle weights is that Nine out of ten times, they're just too heavy. It's too drastic of a change that far away from your center point of gravity. That That's the gist of it. But so I have a question about ankle weights because I'm not a fan. I know you're not. But we do have different kinds of fins, either neutrally buoyant or negatively buoyant. And so, I mean, realistically, I could wear my neutrally buoyant fins with my dry suit with ankle weights, and they'd probably come out close to the same. Well, they're still too big. I mean, to my knowledge, you cannot buy ankle weights that weigh less than half a kilo each. Yeah, which is what about the fins weigh? Well, the, the, yeah, but underwater, I actually made a, a, a video a long time ago in a, on a Danish YouTube channel where we measured the difference of the weight under the water between two comparable fins one being neutrally buoyant and one being negatively buoyant. And the, the difference was like a couple of hundred grams oh, in is that total. All? Yeah, in total. Oh, I think that yeah, yeah. it was 150 grams per fin, so 300 grams per to- in total. And, and But remember, where you're placing these weights, the further you place them from your center point of gravity, the bigger effect it has, right? I mean, that's the whole 
you know principle of a, a scale uh, in the olden days where you have a scale with a tiny little weight on a long a balance, arm a balance scale a balance scale yeah so so you put the further away from the center point of gravity you put weights to offset trim the the smaller those weights needs to be right which is why when we do extreme scuba makeover we, we only need like a two pound one kilogram weight that somebody can hold in their hands because they can extend it all the way out or put it all the way down by their hips and it has a big impact Look, huge impact huge impact now on my on my daily diving rig the z system that i dive every day i have four weight pockets two are on the harness or on the wing, right, sort of behind my kidneys, and the other two are very, very top of my shoulders. And depending upon the exposure suit and the undergarments, right, so I need one configuration of more up top and and less on the bottom with some combinations of dry suit and undergarments. And then when I go to a three millimeter wetsuit, it changes. When I go to a rash guard, it changes. But having those two positions of weight, I'm never in a position where I can't get really, really close by balancing exactly what I need. So I know that if I need 18 pounds, nine kilos, I can divide that up based on the suit, the undergarments, the salinity of the water, all of these kind of things to make sure that the balance is right. So when I do fall into the water, I can go to this neutrally horizontal position and stay there without having to use any core muscles, which chews up gas, any hand movement or body movement, which chews up gas, or any kicking movement, which becomes makes my kicks less efficient. So all of these things, weight placement, how much, getting it right, getting the undergarments right, getting the exposure suit and everything right, all of that leads you to a way to reduce gas consumption, which means you can stay in the water longer. Yeah, exactly. And, and touching on that, I think it's very good you mentioned that in different configuration, exposure suit especially, because when we when we look through the the dry suit mini uh, um, materials and when we teach these you know classes to divers, when they feel that their feet are falling, that they can't keep their feet up in their dry suit, and they then place weight up north, the meaning uh, towards the shoulders. And they find that doesn't solve the problem. They get they get a little bit lost and like wait wait a minute how do how do I then solve it? Well, it's because you need to find that balance of the two air pockets, the two main the two main air pockets in your dry suit, which are under your shoulders and under your feet. We actually like air in our feet, uh, as opposed to a lot of people. If it keeps you warm, it keeps you in trim. Um, so if you feel that your feet are falling down. And if you're trying to stay in trim, uh, it, it's hard because you gotta keep finning in these figure eights to keep your fins up. Try to move weight, as illogical as it may sound, try to move weight further south. So either on your weight belt or uh, as a little V weight, if you're diving with, um, with a pair of doubles, put a little tail weight underneath. Um, even with a single, you can, get a, you can get these commercially made now, a little pouch that, that can be hooked to the bottom bolt of your um, of your wing get get the weight further south because that'll allow you to put a little bit of more air underneath your feet without them being floaty and that that changes your trim dramatically and that makes it able to keep in trim and they don't fall because usually when they when your feet are heavy it's because you realize that when you stay in trim you're 
too much air goes to your feet and then they go up so you kind of go in that 45 degree position and that makes all the air go out of your feet and thus making them even more uh, heavy so placing a little bit of weight further south might actually help there now if that's the case in a wetsuit the opposite is 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 there in a wetsuit you need to place the weights further north in able to um to make your feet rise up because most of the neoprene is upper higher on your body most of the yeah. neoprene that floats is high on your body exactly so, awesome well so, so this was i think a, do you have more because i think this was a really interesting start to this and i think we're going to do more of these yeah for sure i mean the the, the last part i think is um uh, on, on equipment placement we talked a little bit about this but uh, the pocket content and discipline on on managing that and and when we look about uh, cave diving for example a very easy thing to do is to take your pigtail with all your rims on it and just stick it on your d-ring and let it hang there um, if we can talk about the drag that creates is a little bit negligible but the risk of entanglement is is huge right but then it's pain in the ass for new cave divers to take that pigtail in and out of their pocket all the time so um you can do uh what what i like to call a little clothesline in your pocket going like a bungee going from one end to the other that i only use when i use my pocket content for a pigtail because usually i do have two loops for you know smb or, or or stuff that i use spools uh, but then the pigtail goes on that like imagine a clothesline going from, along the thigh from one end to the pocket to the other end uh, makes it very easy to clip on your pigtail makes it super fast to recover why don't we use that for everything that makes more sense than the loops it's really nice to work with because it's so easy to get to uh, the loops I like for a spool because then you can pick out one spool and pull on the loop and it's out away in the clear water and it's easier to, to get it off. Um, but the pigtail, I love that. Um, love that little string thing. So discipline and training is basically what I'm trying to go to. And, and you mentioned something really, really important also with the stowing of a stage bottle or even a deco bottle in between gas switches is to not be content with what we call a dirty stow like just you know putting that second stage one meter hose underneath the first bungee and leaving it at that that it's just gonna you know stick out and grab stuff and 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 look nasty underwater practice a little bit until you can stow that hose away properly it doesn't take many dives to to really get that dialed in all of this does take practice and that's the most important thing is you know like any sport it takes practice. So don't hesitate to try to become better at this. And it just makes for cleaner, funner, you know, much more efficient diving. And the goal is, you know, can you eventually make your cylinder last 10, 15, 20% longer? That's our marginal gain goal. So I think what we should do is we should poll our listeners and see if we can find a hydrodynamic engineer who can come on this show and tell us all the things that we just said that are right, wrong, indifferent. Wrong. (laughs) 
interesting or not interesting. The same way there are, like, there are a million people doing high-speed and low-speed aerodynamics. It's really easy to find someone to talk about this in race cars and bicycles and airplanes and things like that. Because we're going at such slow speeds, you start to think that, well, you know, it's not going to make any difference, right? You're going a quarter knot through the water while you're kicking. But, you know, it's not about the speed. It's about the efficiency, no, the density of the density of the water has to count for something, you know. Right. So we need an engineer. Yeah. So anybody out there who knows an engineer who wears a white coat on a daily yes. basis, contact yes. us. Yes. Call yeah. us, and we'll get you on the show, and let's do another marginal gains scuba podcast with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about in terms of the engineering. Completely talking about hydrodynamics of a diver underwater. Yeah. A low so low speed underwater hydrodynamics. We need to find out more about that because we know it from a scuba diving standpoint and a completely efficient uh, diving and air consumption standpoint, but I want to know about it from the engineering standpoint. Yeah. So engineers, give us a call and, uh, and send in your questions, right? Info at utdscubadiving.com. Let us know what you think about the marginal gains movement that we're trying to start in scuba diving. And let's... Um, Let's build it out. Let's find out how to become more efficient in the water. All right. Well, so thank you, everybody. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next one. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Uh, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's the thing that makes it easier for people to find. We're now on pretty much every outlet that does podcasts. So Pandora and Spotify and all those other things, you can find us there. But if you are going to leave a rating and review, please do it on Apple Podcasts. And then just let us know what you think. And, and uh Let's all work together to find ourselves an engineer who can help us out. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Good night, everyone. Thanks. Hell is going outside.